Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. I am Andrew Ryan, and I'm here to ask you a question. Is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow? No, says the man in Washington. It belongs to the poor. No, says the man in the Vatican. It belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow. It belongs to everyone. I rejected those answers. Instead, I chose something different. I chose the impossible. I chose episode 13 of the College Info Geek podcast. And now you've chosen it as well. And what a good choice that is. Well, welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. As you may have heard already, this is episode 13, and I've got a really cool interview for you today that I'm really excited for you to hear. So, if you are interested in travel, you're going to want to listen to this podcast all the way through. Picture this in your mind. You want to go to some foreign country and travel, and uh, but you don't have any money. So what do you do? You book a ticket to that foreign destination round trip for $5. Think it's crazy? It's actually not crazy. You can actually do that with something called travel hacking, specifically travel hacking with frequent flyer miles. And my friend Travis Sherry from extrapackofpeanuts.com is an expert at this, so I brought him onto the podcast to basically give you a primer on how you can hack your travel and use different tactics and methods of getting your travel costs cut down by a ton, um, especially using frequent flyer miles. So you're going to learn how to do how to get frequent flyer miles. Um, you know different ways of doing it that are not actually just bound up in flying, but in getting credit cards and and just doing everyday purchases. And along the way, you'll actually learn a bit about credit cards themselves if you've never you know bought one or gotten one yourself. So if you're interested in that. You're going to learn that in this episode. Um, you're going to hear me beat you over the head with responsibility tips when it comes to credit cards because I absolutely have to. Uh, but that just comes with the territory, so deal with it. Uh, we also will talk about some trips in Japan because both he and I have been to Japan. He actually lived there for two years. So any of you interested in Japan, you'll get lots of detail about that. If you're not interested in Japan, I profusely apologize but I think the other content in this podcast is definitely worth it. So if you're interested in travel, check this episode out. Now, before we get into the interview, I have a little bit of an announcement to make. Now, last night I had this kind of weird idea um, where I had wanted to do reader questions for a while, but the format of getting them beforehand and doing them on the podcast didn't really appeal to me. Um, it might be something that I do in the future. I don't know, but for a regular thing, it's it's not really the format that I would want to do. So I got this random idea. What if I streamed a video game? In this case, it was Just Cause 2, and I was driving cars down mountains, and then just said, hey, come ask any college question you want 
Um, watch me drive cars down mountains and blow things up, and we'll have a grand old time. So I did it last night. I taught myself how to get set up on Twitch TV, streamed my screen, got everything all set up, the face cam and everything, and got a few people in the chat room asking questions, and it went over really well. So if this is something you were interested in, I will be setting it up uh, officially pretty soon. I'm going to have like a URL where I'll set up like voting for different games to play and all that. But all you need to know right now is twitch.tv slash thomasfrank09 is my username. Everything else was taken for some reason. But if you're interested in asking me any question you want on college during a live Q&A session and possibly watching some cool video game stream footage, then follow me on there. Um, I'm going to get more details out to the College Info Geek newsletter pretty soon once I get it all figured out. But that's just a taste of things to come. I also have plenty of other non-gaming content coming soon. Um, New articles, new podcasts. I have three episodes recorded already. So I'm very excited to get those out to you. But I'm going to space them out a little bit and get some written content in there as well. All right, enough announcements and blabbering on for me. Let's get into this interview with Travis Sherry of ExtraPackOfPeanuts.com. And let's learn how to hack some travel. Oh, and I almost forgot. uh, Show notes for this episode. So if this is your first Rodeo with the College of Geek podcast, I actually have a full-on domain you can go to that will point over to the podcast page on College Info Geek. So if you just go to sigpodcast.com, C-I-G-podcast.com, you'll find the podcast page on the website with all the episode listings. You can find the listing for episode 13, and at that blog post, you'll get the download link for this episode, um, link to iTunes if you want to subscribe or write a review, and all the links to all the resources we're going to talk about in this episode and show notes and all that good stuff. So check it out, CIGpodcast.com and episode 13 link. All right, let's get into it. All right, uh, welcome to the show, Travis. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Thomas. All right, cool. So um, before we get into the details about frequent flyer miles and you know, hacking travel and all this awesome stuff that you talk about on your website, uh, I think we ought to kind of backpedal a little bit in the beginning to talk about, you know, what is the reason for doing all this and getting into it? Because I know you didn't just hop onto Flyer Talk and start looking at all these SPG deals and apparamas and all these other buzzwords just because it was, you know, fun right off the bat. So like what got you into traveling and, you know, can you tell us a little bit about like why it's an amazing thing to do and why students should do it? Sure. Um, all the stuff I do on my site with the talking about how to travel cheap and frequent fire miles and all that stuff that you mentioned is kind of a means to an end. And the end goal then is travel. And the reason I started getting into travel was just the way that I felt after taking some of my first trips. And the first trip I can really touch on didn't have to do with flying at all. It was actually a road trip I took where after I finished my senior year of high school and my sister was moving down to Florida, I lived in Philadelphia at the time, and she needed someone to drive down a bunch of her stuff to move into college because she was flying and couldn't take everything on the plane, obviously. So me and a coll- uh, roommate, of, uh, not a roommate then, I guess a high school friend of mine, went down and, and it was the first time we had this kind of sense of freedom. We took a car and within 15 minutes we had gotten lost. We didn't even know how to get on 95 South or anything <laughs> like that. But it was this idea that we had a trip to take and it was kind of the first time we had traveled on our own without our family and things like that. And I can remember that being the first real trip that sparked me to think, man, this is really cool. I'm just seeing new things. You know, we'd pull over at every rest stop we could and be like, this is the first time we're here. And, you know, it's just a crappy rest stop on the side of the road or something. But 
it was a brand new thing to us and and that sparked my desire to travel and then I uh, the first international trip I ever did was I went to Paris when I was 21. Uh, I just turned 21 to help build a church and things like that. And again, then that just blew my mind even more because all of a sudden I was out of America and people weren't speaking the language and stuff like that. So travel has always been a big part of my life since then just because it's it's these new experiences and it really begins to kind of shape who we are and getting out of our comfort zone and all things like that, some of the stuff that you talk about on your site of just kind of expanding our horizons. And I think travel is an awesome tool for learning. Right. And, you know, what did you, what did you, like, how did it change your worldview the first time you went across, you know, across the ocean to a new country? Because I know for me, before going to Japan, I'd always kind of like thought travel was this cool thing to do, but it's just like, you know, America's great. And if I never go, it'd be, you know, it'd be fine. And I kind of went on a whim. And when I came back, it's like, you have to go do this. You know, it's kind of like an essential life experience is what I think now. Is that kind of what you thought after getting back? Definitely. It's hard to kind of put into words, I guess, until you do it. But I think everyone who has had that feeling knows what you're talking about. And I went to Paris the, the first time internationally, and it was just amazing because I I didn't know what people were saying. I didn't know what they're eating. It, you know, and it, every single second of that trip was this new experience, and you just it, it leaves you kind of just so excited about things because we can go through our lives day to day and turn out of our driveway and not even think about the direction we're going because you're kind of on auto, autopilot all the time. And when you're traveling to a new place for the first time, everything is so new and fresh that it really. I feel like your senses are so in tune with what's going on because you're just overloaded. And it's a pretty neat experience. And I, to this day, every time I go somewhere new, um, I get that feeling. So, you know, Paris was the first international trip. But then when I lived in Japan, that was the first time I was really uh, first time I went to Asia. And of course, everything was completely different than what I had experienced in America and Europe. Then, you know, when I went to Thailand, it was completely different than Japan. So every time I go somewhere new, I get that feeling again, kind of that almost the same feeling I had when I was 18. I took that road trip of just being, you know, blessed with this opportunity to go to these new places and see these things that before I had been there, I could not really wrap my mind around. And then when you come back, you have such a, a nuanced thinking of, you know, when someone talks to me about Japan now, I can relate. Same as me and you talked a couple of days ago for like two hours about Japan because we'd both been there. So it's really cool to be able to bring your own experiences and memories into it when you hear about a place that you've been. Right, exactly. And that's a great point to make about the, you know, not you're on autopilot when you're at home. And then when you're abroad, everything is new, which is really cool because I'm sure you probably know this even more than me. But now that I'm graduated and I have to sink into a little bit of a routine, being at home is really just like, okay, every day I have a routine, it's autopilot, I know what I'm going to do. And then you go to another country. And like you said, every second is just this amazing like okay what do i do next even like getting on the train is an exciting experience and trying to read signs on the side of the road yeah like totally it makes it fun yeah i remember that when i first arrived in japan i had no i didn't speak any japanese i didn't know anyone or anything like that and for the first week week and a half i would just i would walk to the grocery store every day it took maybe 25 minutes and i would just wander through the aisles and pick up every package oh, yeah. I could. Of course, I couldn't read anything, you know, but I would pick mm -hmm. it up and look at it and just say like, is this ketchup? What, what is this? You know, <laughs> and it, it sounds so funny, but those were some of my strongest memories from being in Japan was that first couple 
couple weeks where everything was new and you know i'd walk a different way to the grocery store and i'd see a new shop i had never seen or a new person or well in japan there's people everywhere so i'd see a ton of new people but yeah it's just this idea that everything is so fresh and you're kind of just you have such raw feelings when you first go to a place because you have no idea what to expect no matter how much you read on wikipedia or lonely planet or anything like that oh exactly i think i went through every single page wicca travel had for japan uh, before i went and then just going into like a 7-eleven and walking around like <laughs> just the memory of just like seeing everything in there and like all the things the cashiers say and all like crazy things you can't buy here in america yep it's like some of the strongest memories now, i know we talked about japan um, when we talked back on thursday but that was kind of like unheard on the episode and i would love to just talk about japan again because man i love that country so much so can you talk yeah. a little bit about like what got you in japan you know when i first connected with you on skype i saw uh, Hiroshima as your hometown set on Skype. And I was like, that's so cool, you know? Yeah. Well, what <laughs> happened with me, it was kind of a progression. I had gone to Paris when I was 21 and I was in university. I, I was a junior at that point in the middle of my junior year. And then I graduated and I started a regular job. I was teaching high school history and I liked it. Um, but I, uh, there was a few opportunities that came up for me to do a master's degree. And I went back and did that. And one of my biggest regrets having been a college student was that I never studied abroad. And believe it or not, I just didn't care about traveling really. It was, it was odd. I don't know. I was in my little comfort zone with my friends. My sister had studied abroad in New Zealand, Australia. She raved about it. And I just never really gave it uh, a second thought, which to, now to me seems crazy because I, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would go somewhere new and you know pay the same amount of money as you would at to attend your regular university and all. But I then when I went back and did my master's, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take the opportunity to go somewhere abroad now to do an internship. And I moved to Switzerland and I did an internship there. And um, living somewhere for five months was a lot different than traveling somewhere. And so when I came back from Switzerland, I thought that was really cool to actually live there because I got, you know, you have that first week, two week honeymoon period where everything's new. And but then you also kind of after being there really un start to understand the culture and then day to day life happens. And and so you're living within the culture. And that was a lot different than just visiting somewhere. So when I came back from Switzerland, I thought, how can I, how can I live somewhere abroad? And my background had been in teaching. And I had a friend who did the JET program, which is through the Japanese government. And it's teaching English in Japanese public high schools for the most part. And I applied for that. It was a long process. Um, you apply in November and you don't get told until kind of mid-May that, that you've been accepted and then they tell you where you go kind of in June. So it was, you know, an eight month long process. So if anyone is interested in it, I tell them to, you know, get started on it. But I, I just figured he had done the jet program, had good things to say about it. I knew nothing about Japan. I didn't read manga. I didn't like anime. I didn't speak Japanese. Um, but it was just a new experience. And so I, I got in and I moved to Japan in July of 2010. And like I said, I was completely new to the country. I'd never been to Asia. And I, I did fall in love with it. I mean, I, I probably will never live there again, but I would love to go back as a tourist because the people are beautiful. They're so nice. They're so kind. They're so generous. generous. And the country itself is, you know, it's unlike anywhere else in the world. It, it really is its own distinct culture and geography and stuff and customs. So it's a really, really cool place. So you, you didn't have Japan in mind when you wanted to get out. You just kind of went off the recommendation from a friend and jumped into it? 
Right, exactly. I had never, I, at that point, I probably couldn't tell you like whether Tokyo was in Japan or China or whether Beijing was in, you know, Japan or China. I just, I didn't have any worldview of Asia at all. And mm. so when people say to me like, oh, how was China? I don't really get mad at them and say, no, I was in Japan because that's <laughs> how I was. I just didn't, I don't know. It didn't really resonate with me. So I just went off a recommendation of a friend thought, well, I've never been to Japan. Why not go? And, uh, and I did go. And I would say about 50% of the people in the program are kind of like that. They decide to go to Japan just for the adventure. And then probably the other 50% of people go because they actually, you know, speak Japanese or want to be in the, uh, Japanese, in the Japanese culture and stuff like that. So you spoke almost no Japanese when you got to Japan at all. And yet you were teaching Japanese students your language how does that work like how do you what if like a, a student pipes up and they're like oh how do i say this but they're saying that in japanese like how do you know how do, that they want to learn to say a specific word or something if you don't know how to speak japanese well i mean <laughs> ignorance is bliss really it was kind of awesome in terms of if they were like mad at me or cursing me out or something i i obviously had no idea right so yeah. i just assumed everyone liked me and was laughing with me not at me when it was probably the other way around <laughs> um yeah i didn't speak any japanese and how the program works is you're always supposed to be in the classroom so they want people who don't speak japanese for the specific intent of these kids if they want to talk to you have to try to speak english so i was the perfect candidate with that i didn't speak a, a lick of it and you're supposed to be in the classroom then with and a uh, Japanese teacher who is an English teacher. So they are there. It, the dynamic in the classroom depends on who you are and who they are. I usually took the lead role because I had been a teacher and felt comfortable teaching, but they're supposed to be there to help out with anything that has to happen. So they'll speak Japanese with the children sometimes, um, whereas you know I wasn't supposed to. And, and at, in the beginning, couldn't even speak any Japanese to them. And as, as it progressed, I spent... You know, the first three or four months really practicing Japanese because I just to survive and got to a level where I could at least understand some of what was going on and speak to them a little bit. So in the hallways, then outside the classroom, I'd you know, ask them how their day was in Japanese or if they're a baseball player, talk to them about baseball a little bit. But for the most part, yeah, I was supposed to speak English to them. And, and that's what I did um, because really that's all I could do. Okay. So outside of the classroom, then you you said you took three or four months to try to get some basic survival Japanese, but of course that was three or four months to living in Japan. So, you know, for the student who's like, how do I go visit a country if I don't speak the language? You know, can you speak a little bit about like how easy it is to get by without knowing anything? Yeah, I mean, it. I guess it depends on the situation you're going into. I was fortunate enough to know that I was going into a school with. English speaking Japanese teachers. Now there was probably 80 teachers in the school and two of them were English teachers. So really outside of those two, there was a few teachers who made a little bit of effort to speak English with me, but it was mostly those two were kind of my lifelines. And most of the times when you go into a culture, they will have some sort of mentor person for you because they know, well, if we just put this guy in a classroom and, and or in a situation like a living situation and he doesn't have anyone to help him out, well, he's probably going to fail and he's probably going to leave and that's bad for them and bad for you. So these two teachers at my school helped me with everything in the beginning, getting a cell phone, um, getting air conditioning, like buying groceries, teaching me all about what to do in day-to-day -day life as well as then in the school. And I would just say for the student, I mean, looking to the program that you're going to go into, I knew the JET program was a good one, and I could I would recommend it to anyone else who's looking to do it because my friend had recommended it, and I knew it would be through the government, and they'd provide support for me. But a lot of times if you're going to a country that and you're working in a small English 
school, you know, it's going to be a little more random. You might have an awesome experience or it might be a little more hairy. But, you know, the the worst thing that can happen is you go over there and you don't know what's going on. Um, And again, then you you kind of learn on your own. And usually there'll be other expats. There's a few other expats living in my area that uh, one of them, a great friend of mine now, she spoke, spoke perfect Japanese. She was a British girl. So, you know, if I had to go to the doctor, she'd help me do that. So there usually are pockets of expats that you can cling on to, too, if there isn't that support system built in for the job you're going over for, the program you're going over in. Right. Now, when I was in Tokyo, I know if you if you know, like the right city district to go to, you can find a lot of expats. Sure. Who are either just visiting, staying at the hostels or actually staying there. Um, so were you in like a bigger city area or were you in like a smaller area where you might not have found as many of those kind of people? Yeah, I was in a city of 800,000, which seems really big, except the city limits were were massive. So really, the downtown was about 100,000. Um, and we actually had a ton of people in our area that were uh, Brazilian and Filipino, because there's a lot of factories there. Kawasaki and Yamaha had major hubs there and stuff like that. So they came to work in the factories. So it was funny because I actually I'd play basketball on the court around uh, my house and I'd meet a lot of Filipino guys who some spoke Japanese, some didn't, some spoke really good English, um, others didn't. So in my area, there was there was groups, too, that they had at the cultural center at the downtown cultural center. They'd offer free Japanese classes. They'd offer free English classes for other people. And there was a, a few groups that got together that were specifically made for expats to kind of meet and hang out and get to know one another. Cool. So yeah. along with the with the teaching, did you get any time to travel around the country? Yeah, we it was comparable to a, a Western school in that um, we had a whole month in August where the where the students were in school. So they were in school all of August. So a lot of people would take their trips then um, I went home the first year back to America, and then the second year um, I I was leaving, so I was getting ready to go. So my parents came and visited me in Japan. But we also had their school year ended in March, so we also had a a period at the end of their school year where they also were in school for about a month um, during April. And so we did a lot of traveling then. And any time that we had long holidays, uh, Christmas, you get kind of three weeks off, two to three weeks off. So me and my wife went to Australia then during one of the Christmas times. The other time went to Thailand and Cambodia, Malaysia. So there was a, we took every chance we could to travel, whereas a lot of people in the program wanted to save more money and they decided just to travel either around Japan or not travel much at all. Whereas one of the reasons we went was specifically because we wanted to travel around. So we did take every opportunity we had to travel and probably went on about six or seven big trips in the two years that we were there. That's a, that's a lot. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if we had a week off, we'd be like, let's go to Thailand. You know, it's a seven hour flight. We'd, we'd hop on a plane. We'd go to Thailand. We'd spend a week, week and a half there, and then we'd come back. So we did, we did cram a lot into two years for sure. And the, the flight prices between the Asian countries around that area are pretty cheap, aren't they? Yeah, for the most part, especially once you get down into Southeast Asia, it's really cheap because Air Asia is a great budget airline. So once you land in uh, Kuala Lumpur, where their headquarters are, you can basically get anywhere in Southeast Asia for for about fifty bucks, fifty to seventy bucks. So you can oh, wow. fly to the north of Thailand, which is like three and a half hours, you know, for fifty bucks. You can fly to Cambodia. You can fly to Bali. Uh, you know the Philippines. You can go a ton, a ton of places with Air Asia. So once you get into Southeast Asia, it's really, really cheap. 
flying around Japan domestically can be cheap, but it also can be really expensive. So you have to look for certain deals there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Japan is is a pretty expensive country to travel in, unless like how you did it. Um, if you're a tourist, you can get a Japan Rail Pass, which is awesome for exploring Japan itself. It's like a oh, yeah, Euro definitely. Rail Pass. Yeah. So they have the same thing in Europe where you can get a fixed price pass for unlimited right. travel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you it's like, you know, I I don't know the exact number of days, but it's usually like 5-day, 10-day, 15-day pass and mm-hmm. it's a set price and you can take any trains you want in Europe. Same in Japan, you can take the the Shinkansen, which is the bullet train anywhere you want in Japan. So I, I forget you told me you paid what 250 for a 7 uh, my a friend's week dad pass? paid the 250 for a week pass. So we paid okay. about 430 I think for a 14-day yeah, so and, it seemed like a lot at the you know when I was handing over four hundred and thirty dollars cash to this travel agent, but then sure. when we're in the country, like looking at the Shinkansen prices for where we wanted to go, we easily probably would have doubled that amount of money had we Definitely. paid for actual tickets. Yeah, I'll tell so, people. I mean, to put it in perspective, I lived about an hour and a half on the bullet train from Tokyo, and it would take it would cost me about a hundred dollars each way to get into Tokyo. So you're mm-hmm. spending. To go an hour and a half to Tokyo uh, round trip, you're spending two hundred dollars, and then you're spending another thirty to get to and from the airport each way. So you're looking at two sixty, basically, to get to my little town from Tokyo. Um, <laughs> and you know, and for two hundred fifty, you can get a seven day pass, which is unlimited. So yeah, yeah. I, I would tell anyone if they're a tourist, if they're on a tourist visa to go over um, and see Japan, it is the way to go because you can go from the very tip of Japan all the way down to the bottom um, and. Yeah, the the bullet train is super convenient. It mm-hmm. it's amazingly fast. You know, they have uh plugs on the train. You can, you know, you be on your laptops, they serve food, all types of stuff. So, really awesome way to travel around Japan for sure. Oh yeah, the Shinkansen was great. And definitely like the plugs and their uh their American plugs. So, I guess yeah. I don't I think most of the outlets there are, are uh pretty standard just yeah, not three prong. Right. The Japan and American plugs are basically the same. Yeah. You, except if you have a three prong, sometimes that'll give you a little trouble, but they're the same type of plug for sure. Mm-hmm. So you can go to Yodabashi and get a adapter. Did you end up going to Yodabashi when you were there at all? No, I did not. Oh man. It's like this, uh, this, the most giant store I've ever seen. Like, okay. Think of like seven Walmarts stacked on top all of right. each other, but it's all like electronics and appliances and media and stuff absolutely insane store basically like anything you want to buy electronically would be there yeah yeah so, they love their electronics there's one mm-hmm. near me um called for k's electronics ah, there was a bunch near me that same thing like these huge massive electronics stores you walk in and you're just overloaded your senses <laughs> are going crazy because there's lights and music and people yeah. asking if you need help and you're like where am i yeah it's pretty neat it's fun. It's like being at a newegg.com that's like real. Like you can <laughs> yeah. buy like a whole custom PC there and like I'm like you can do that. You can go to Best Buy here Iowa and get a pre-built something but right. no components. Yeah, they love so the electronics. Is, so this is so cool. Hopefully we drilled in the uh importance and benefits of travel for anyone listening to this cuz you know, I it, my travel experience was on a whim. Okay. Um, I definitely like read up on Japan at Wiki Travel when I was planning, but it was like February on Facebook. Someone's like, "Who wants to go to Japan? Let's do it!" All right. And then three months later, we're there. Uh, have no idea what to do. It's funny because they they ask you at customs where you're staying. Right. When you come in, maybe they had this happen to you, but you probably already knew where you were staying. We didn't know because we hadn't booked anything. So I was just like. I just wrote Tokyo Hotel on my custom <laughs> slip. I just made it the name hotel. And he's like, okay, do you know where that is? And I'm like, I don't know. 
in Tokyo. My friend knows where it is. It's in Tokyo. Yeah. So you yeah. let us buy. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. I would. Yeah. Just to reiterate, I would tell everyone, especially young people, like when I was in college, again, I, for whatever reason, I had taken that trip when I was 18 and loved it, but I didn't really look internationally at all. And not that everyone has to travel internationally, because now that I've been home, I've done a ton of domestic travel and love that as well. America is an awesome country and there's so much to see. But you know, if you, if you do have an urge to travel, just get out and do it. And we're going to tell you some ways to do it cheap for sure. Especially, you know, when I was in college, I didn't have any money. And I, that was probably one of the reasons I'd never even thought about traveling, but it does open up your role so much. And the sooner you start doing it, the sooner you're going to get hooked. So for me, people always ask me like, well, now you've been to here, 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 here are, when are you done traveling? And I look at them like, are you crazy? You know, the more I travel, (laughs) the more I want to travel because the more I realize, wow, that was amazing. Um, I want to spend more time there or that was amazing. I wonder what this country next door, like Myanmar, Burma is like, I've been to Thailand. It's completely different. So the more I travel, the more I want to do it. And I think that's probably the case for most people, especially people who will be listening to your podcast and who are all about learning and new things. I, you know, it is the best learning experience I've ever, ever had is travel. And it's taught me a lot more than I've learned from books and, you know, classes and stuff like that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I've definitely I've learned a ton from books, a ton from classes and work experiences, but nothing has really like changed my perspective on right. just from seeing the way other people live and how people act in different countries, you know, just all those differences getting like down in the trenches and seeing them firsthand really changes the way you look at things. And it really is like I I've been to Japan twice and I really want to go back then and I also want to go see other countries, so I don't think there's any shortage of uh, (laughs) desirable travel opportunities that is going to be manifesting itself in the future. Definitely going to have to be buying more plane tickets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. There is no shortage of places. I mean, the more people I have on my travel podcast I talk to, I mean, people have traveled all over and uh, even a lot more than me. And they they echo exactly what I say. You know, there's just so many more places you want to go. And the funny part is, is once you go to a place, like I've been to Thailand twice now, and I think, man, I haven't spent enough time there. I might have been there 30 days total in my two times there. And, you know, I say, well, I want to do three months there. And, and I didn't get to go to this place. So even if you've been to a country, I don't think you can say like, well, I've done Japan or I've done Ireland. Now it's time to move on. Because every time you go back, you learn more more and more and stuff's constantly changing as well so if you've been to a place Mm -hmm. five years ago it's going to look a lot different than it does now i think it's important to kind of squash that whole done this country ideal really quickly because a lot of people especially in america just like that fast travel mentality is what we have and we want to go see a country and do like the week-long tour of europe right if someone says week-long tour of europe to me like i I would never want to do that because that means I'm rushing through an entire country in a day and then hopping on a train and going to a new one without getting time to experience it. Sure. Um, have you yeah. ever read the book Vagabonding at all? Um, I've, I've read through parts of it and the guy who wrote it, Rolf Potts, is a, uh, like a colleague or acquaintance of mine. So, okay. yeah, I would rec- highly recommend it. I, I, mm-hmm. I always, I never read all the way through it. I just like pick it up and read a little bit and then it gives me enough motivation to be like, now I got to get out and see the world again. And he, he is a proponent of that kind of slow travel idea of, and, and Mm -hmm. if it comes down to not traveling or seeing Europe in a week, I would definitely say, go see Europe in a week, do what you can. But the more time you spend in an area, the more you can really, really get to know it. And I would never tell someone not to go back to a place they've been just because they've already done it. Because like we said, that you can't be done a country. It's always going to change and there's always going to be more to see. 
Mm-hmm. And the more time you spend there, the more like in tune with the culture you get. And some of my my favorite experiences were just making friends and like being able to speak a little bit of the language to them, just having those little tiny interactions. Like that is more memorable than some of the crazy, you know, temples I went to see or some of the awesome, like cool experiences, just getting deep in the culture, which is why that, that slow travel where you go and you just hang out for a few weeks in one city is definitely something that if you can do it, I would highly recommend doing that. For sure. For sure. And I, I kind of call it like the Facebook travel is that idea of like, now I'm at the Eiffel Tower and everyone looks at your Facebook picture like, wow, now I'm at the mm. Tower of London. Now I'm here. And again, it's cool. You <laughs> want to see tourist sites because they are tourist sites for a reason. They are really neat. And I go to them when I go to new places, of course, you know, like we were in Sydney, of course, you're we going to the Opera House and we were walking across the Sydney Harbor Bridge and stuff like that. But it is for me, what resonates even more is those the people I meet and those small experiences I have. Like we're wandering around a temple in Bali, and you know, no one's there. I have no idea. You know, no one owns this temple. It's just probably been sitting there for eight hundred years. And there's a guy who comes up to us and it's just pointing to us, doesn't speak any English, and he takes us down this back path, and we see these amazing rice fields. Like you know, we walk for like twenty minutes following this guy. Who we're like where's he taking us? You know, like (laughs) hopefully this is all right. And, but he had a great big smile on his face and we go to these rice fields and, you know, he took us this awesome view that you could see all of them. And we never would have found that. We just happened to be moseying around. Me and my wife always just kind of stop and walk around and see what comes up. And inevitably, usually someone comes up to you and takes you to a restaurant. You got to eat here or shows you this place that you've never seen. So it's those type of things that are really, really neat about travel that I remember a lot more vividly than, than just the sites. Right. And I definitely agree with you there. The little just things that locals take you to go see are so much more fun. And it, I mean, it's like your experience. It, it feels less like the shared experience of going to a tourist site and you're like, right. okay, everyone goes and see this. You know, that is, that's your experience. Yeah. So totally. before we get into the meat of like what you do on your site, um, the one last question I have, which a lot of students are going to have is, study abroad program versus simply solo travel. And for me, I recommend just skipping study abroad and, and traveling solo. And that, that's at least what I would do. Um, but what do you, what would you say for the person who's, you know, caught between those two options? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I actually, like I said, I never studied abroad. So for me, that was my biggest regret. And I think that studying abroad is a good option. I think the solo travel you're probably going to learn more about yourself and grow more. Um, It's also going to be a lot more challenging, which can be good or bad, depending on what you want at that time. I would never tell someone not to do a study abroad because, like I said, it was kind of... To me, I look back now and I say, man, I could have paid the same amount of money to go to, you know, do a semester in whatever country because you're probably paying the same tuition to your school and then they're sending it to the other school. You know, you get to be around students that are either from your college who are like minded as you or or colleges all around the country. If it's a kind of a joint study abroad program, you get to take classes that are probably going to be a lot easier because they know you're there to you know, be in the country and, and go around. It's so like my sister's like, yeah, our class in Australia was super easy because we had class like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because they knew Monday, Friday, you know, we wanted to be out and traveling. So I I would definitely tell people to do a study abroad if they, if given the opportunity and, and if it works in their schedule and there's a place they want to go and things like that. Um, but I would also say if you're the type of person who does like doing things on your own and, and wants that challenge, then there's no reason not to do a solo trip. And Europeans and Australians, 
get on that boat 100%. You are, whenever you're traveling and backpacking around, you always see Europeans and Australians doing these gap years, whether it be between high school and college or college and working or any, you know, sometimes they're even older and they just decide to take a year off work. And they're always doing it. And it's pretty cool because in America, we don't really have that mentality. We have, okay, I'm in high school. Now I'm going to college. Now I'm getting a job. And if I take a year off, what's that going to look like on my resume? But -hmm. I think more and more people are starting to look at this European model, this Australian model, and see that their students are more worldly, more developed, more mature because they've, you know, if you've been six months backpacking around Europe, you've had some run-ins where you didn't know what to do and you figured it out. And that's a lot different than just sitting in a classroom and then, you know, going back to your dorm room and drinking on Friday and Thursday and Wednesday and every day. Oh, yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, the, the solo travel thing or even group travel with, a, with another person or two people, I think that's going to change your worldview dramatically. So if anyone ever came to me and said, Travis, I'm thinking about doing this, I would say just do it because I didn't do it when I was younger. I've started to do it now that I'm now I'm 30. But I've you know, since I was 27, 20, I've really started to travel a lot more. And, you know, like if I had done it when I was younger, I would it would have just shaped my worldview that much quicker. And I, I think that there's definitely big value in either one of those options. It kind of just comes down to what type of person you are. If you want to dip your toe in a little bit, do the study abroad. If you're like, hey, I want to go full bore right off the bat. That sounds awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. take a take a semester off or or do it right after you graduate or anything like that. Go traveling and I think that you're going to learn a lot more than you would have if you hadn't done it. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's 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 between the go on study abroad and and solo travel. I would say for anyone who's who is caught between not going abroad at all and having a study abroad, as long as it makes financial sense. Sure. If you're not going to have a, you know, a huge financial burden and taking a ton of more loans, definitely do it. Um, you did say one thing in that answer that I'd like to touch on a little bit before we move on. This this episode isn't really about you know building your personal brand, building your resume. But what you said is like you know, Europeans and Australians, they take these gap years and they get all this experience traveling the world that doesn't necessarily seem like work, but it's still good experience. Whereas in the States, we have this ideal that if we stop working for a year, it's going to look bad on a resume. And I just like to say, you know, if I was a hiring manager or the CEO of a company and I have an applicant who said I, I took a year to adventure the world and, you know, learn to navigate a country on my own and I gained all these experiences, even though I wasn't working, you know, actively at that time, I'm going to look at that positively. Sure. Uh, because that's that shows adaptability, you know, and that shows a spirit of adventure and, you know, wanting to improve your life. Yeah, a hundred percent. I know when I came back from Switzerland, um, I, I didn't know what I was going to do next. I, I was applying for the program in Japan, but I didn't know what I was going to do in the interim. And I had been a high school history teacher, but it was very competitive in the Philadelphia area to get a job in that. And I just happened, someone contacted me out of the blue for a job because my resume had been online on a, you know, on a list serve type thing. And I went in the interview and I just, they're like, what have you been doing recently? I told them I was living in Switzerland and what I was doing. And you could tell right away they were like, this is the guy, you know, because mm-hmm. most people are saying, well, I've, I've been teaching at this neighboring school district or whatever. And I just, you know, they kept asking me questions about Switzerland, like as, as kind of like fans, like, well, what was it like? Was it yeah. pretty? Was it as beautiful as they say? Like, and of course I'm, you know, I'm, I'm loving it because I'm just telling them everything I did. And at the end of the interview, it wasn't even really an interview. They were just drilling me about traveling and why I love Switzerland so much. And, you know, they called me like as soon, within half an hour of when I left the interview, they called me was like, do you want the job? And I took mm-hmm. it and I know that had I not had that experience, I might have still gotten the job, but it was that made me stand out. And now I've had a few interviews 
for different positions since I've been back from Japan and haven't taken any because I'm doing my own website and that's going well. But every one that I've had, they've always drilled me about what was it like to live in Japan? What was the experience like? And when I talk to them about it, just like I'm kind of talking to you about it now, you can tell like their eyes light up and they're just they're like, all right, this guy has done something a lot different than other candidates. And it, it sticks in their memory. And I think mm-hmm. that especially for a young person coming out and looking for a way to get, uh, you know, to really be memorable, having an experience like that. And of course, being able to talk about it in interview and being passionate is, is really going to wow them. So I definitely, if I was hiring people too, would, would really look at people who have this world kind of worldview and world travel ideas and, and look favorably upon that. Mm -hmm. And And the personal benefits that you get from travel aside just having that experience really it makes for an interesting conversation to have when you're in an interview. It you have a story to tell and you have something that is exciting and unknown to the interviewer. Whereas, you know, most people if they just have a standard resume with standard work experiences, that's not really a story that, you know, that we're chomping at the bit to hear. Right. And there's a topic I'm gonna write about on my site called the Halo Effect, where your first impression that you give somebody basically will color their judgment of the rest. Um, you know, of what they learned about you and they'll kind of fill in the gaps of things they don't know about you. So if you come out right out of the bat saying, you know, I've gone to this amazing country that and immediately lights up interest in their minds, you've automatically colored yourself as a really, really interesting individual that they just want to hear about. For sure. Yeah. One small point. I, I met a friend who was Australian when I was in Japan and on his resume, we were talking about resumes and stuff like that. And on his resume, he had put how many countries he had been to. And I always thought, oh, that's a bit... It's a bit odd. Like, I don't think I'm going to do that. And he's like, well, I really think you should because every time I go in an interview, they ask me about the country because he had been, I don't know, 20, 25 or something. And at this point, I've been to about the same amount. And he said, every time I go in an interview, they ask me about it. They say, oh, like, because it sticks out. It's just something that they think, wow, it's interesting. Like, no one else has it on their resume. And it's a decent amount of number, like a decent number. He, probably has some cool stories and in the end the person interviewing you is a is another human right like they they're gonna like if if you put them at ease and if it's comfortable conversation more than them sitting there just drilling questions into you and so i you know i think that that is a great point that it's very easy to have a conversation because they're going to ask you about it you're going to light up about it you're going to talk very openly about it because it's a cool experience to you and it's going to set the mood for the whole interview as well as like you said how they then judge you afterwards they're going to be like that that guy or girl was pretty neat like that was a cool conversation Mm, exactly awesome okay so let's get into like the details about like how to how to do travel how to actually make it affordable so you talk about you know frequent flyer miles and you know travel hacking and all these topics on your site so before we get into that i kind of want to just like set up the scenario for a typical travel situation okay and and like break down the expenses of it. So I guess I'll just go with my experience in going to Japan. Um, I started reading a little bit about travel hacking because I've been in that you know life hacking space for quite a while. Never knew anything about frequent flyer miles or anything like that. Um, but I did know that I could like I did learn that you could set up a price alert for your flight ticket. Okay. And I did that, and I was able to get my my ticket to Japan down from the typical twelve hundred dollars to about eight hundred and fifty bucks. Right, nice. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that's I thought that was pretty good. Now, let's compare that to like a, c- a scenario where you're doing your mile hacking. What could you feasibly get a ticket to Japan down to if you were doing this, you know, your way? Okay, yeah. So for me, I, I'll start by saying that I didn't have any idea what frequent fire miles were 
nor did I have any credit card or anything like that until I was living in Japan at the age of like 20, either late 27 or, or, or 28. Um, and I had heard about frequent flyer miles. I had flown a lot and I never earned them because I just, they were confusing. And that is the reason they're confusing is because people don't want you to redeem them because if I redeem my miles, I'm getting a free ticket. It's hurting the airline. So they, they make it kind of vague and confusing on purpose because that way people don't use them. So for me now, I have a bunch of frequent fire miles. And if I wanted to travel to Japan, I would take a portion of those frequent fire miles. So about 65,000 frequent fire miles to get round trip between America and Japan. And I would only then have to pay the taxes and fees on the airline ticket, which would, depending on what I, airline I fly, would equate to probably between 50 to to $100 for a ticket to Japan. So 50 bucks to fly to Japan and back. Right. Yeah, that roughly. Yep. $800 less than I paid. Right. And you got a great deal. 850 mm-hmm. is a very, very good uh, deal if you're paying for the ticket. Rough, like you said, kind of the average is 1200 And then obviously it can be much more if you're flying, you know, holidays or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 1200 is like the typical every day. So. Right. 1200 yeah. versus 50 bucks. I mean, anyone, <laughs> anyone out there looking to travel and, you know, get some, get, you know, the most bang for their buck are definitely going to perk their ears up at that. Yeah, so, I just did I did a post recently that got a lot of attention and it was how I got to Rio for the World Cup next year for $5. And of course, people love to hear <laughs> numbers, right? And yes. they're like $5, that's impossible. And I actually said, well, that's actually for two tickets for me and my wife. So I was lying in the post title there. It should have said <laughs> two tickets to Rio for $5. But yes, it, it is possible and, and yeah, go ahead. We can get into how how it's done. Um, yeah, so I love for you to ask questions kind of from the, your perspective since you are fairly new to it as well. Yeah, I, I know almost nothing about it. I think I have 8,000 frequent flyer miles from just random trips I've taken, right. and they're all just in my Delta account. They're all from only purchases of airline tickets. Sure. Um, so, I mean, the, the person thinking, who has no idea, including me, will think I can get frequent flyer miles from my airline ticket purchases. How else do I get this and how do I get 65,000 miles? You know, so what are the other methods from which you get frequent flyer miles and what are like the big ticket items? Yeah, sure. I, I thought when I was new to it too, that, you know, you got miles for flying, which you do. So if you fly to Japan, it's roughly 8,000 miles. All you have to do is give them a frequent flyer account number, which is free to sign up for. And those miles will go into your account for the miles that you fly. And that is the simplest, easiest, duh, just do this type thing. Because even if you never use them, I mean, you're, you're at least accruing miles for, for doing nothing other than flying as you would anyway. But the, the real way and the biggest misconception about frequent fire miles is that you can only get them from flying. And nowadays, most people have probably seen the commercials where you'll see a credit card commercial come on the TV and it says like, earn 50,000 miles or 50,000 points for signing up for this credit card. And Signing up for credit cards is the number one best, quickest way for people to get frequent fire miles in these large chunks. So a typical credit card will offer you between like 40 and 60,000 miles for signing up for the credit card. So that is how I was able in two years to earn over a million frequent flyer miles was by taking advantage of these credit card signups and saying, okay, well, this card's going to give me 60,000 frequent flyer miles. And that's, you know, almost enough for me to go to Japan. So I would, I would make sure, you know, my credit score is high and I would check my credit score and everything. And I would open up a credit card. And then usually you have to spend a certain amount 
in a time period. So usually it's like $1,000 in three months or $3,000 in three months. You spend that and then you get that sign-up bonus. So you know after you make that spend, you have 60,000 frequent flyer miles. And then every time you use that credit card to pay for something, you're also getting usually about a mile um, for every dollar you spend. It's kind of the standard, although sometimes you get bonuses. But you know, if I go out and buy a TV for $600, then I'm getting 600 miles because I use my credit card as opposed to paying cash. So that's kind of the way after the sign-up bonus to continue to earn miles for stuff that you would buy anyway. Like I don't tell people, go out and buy everything you want, of course. But like if you're going to go to the grocery store and buy groceries, right, you're going to spend $50 on buying groceries. If you use your credit card and you pay it off, you're getting 50 miles as opposed to getting nothing by by using cash. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm guessing that the number one question sticking out in anyone's mind in college is when you said you sign up for this card and you have to spend a certain amount of money within a certain period. How the heck does a college student spend $3,000 in three months? I mean, I might have been able to do it in college because I work so much and I'd spent way more than I should have. Right. But the average student who's looking to travel on a budget is probably going to want to travel on a budget because they're on a budget in the first place. How do you make that money move out of your account without breaking the bank? Yeah, there is a few kind of like secrets that you can use. The first thing I would tell people, or I always tell people is see if we call it the minimum spend. You have to spend 3000 in three months for, for this one specific card we're talking about. Um, make sure you can make the spend because if you do not make it, you won't get the miles. So there's no point to do it if you can't make it. And for a college student, that is going to be difficult. So I would recommend two things. One, you can try the secrets out that I'm going to tell you about. Or two, the easiest ways to look for cards that don't have high minimum spend. So there are plenty that, you know, it's been, that say spend a thousand in three months or some that say after your first purchase. So you literally get the card, you spend, you make one purchase with it, whatever it is, you can go to McDonald's and buy a $1 cheeseburger and you will get the miles after that. So if you are someone who doesn't spend a lot of money, then those are the cards you want to look for. And there's plenty of them out there that you could get to start getting frequent fire miles and you don't have to worry about these minimum spends. The other way is using uh, kind of like these secret methods. Um, One way is you can use your credit card to buy gift cards. So if I, if I have to spend 3000 in three months and I would only normally spend 2000 in three months, I could go to a store and I could use my credit card to buy gift cards. So I buy a, $500 gas gift card and a $500 visa gift card. And then you have those gift cards and you can use them at your leisure. So you can use them three months from now, five months from now. So that's a way that you can kind of push the spending ahead by buying gift cards and then, you know, using those gift cards later. So that's one way. There's another way that might take a little while to explain, so we won't do it here. But um, if anyone wants to Google it, I think my, the post I wrote comes up first for it, but it's called using Amazon payments to make minimum spend requirements. And that is a way that you can uh, send money to someone else up to $1,000 a month, and then they can send it back to you, but it still counts as spending on your credit card. So kind of a little black hat type secret there for people to, to help make the minimum spend. So I've heard about these crazy people who will go out and they'll buy like $500 worth of collector coins. Okay. And then they take the coins and they go like deposit them in their bank account. So I mean, I don't even know. Is that still like a thing people do or not? You, you, you used to, that used to be the big way is you would order coins from the U.S. Mint. The Mint would ship you the coins free of charge, and then you would just take those coins and actually deposit them in the bank so you weren't spending any money, um, but you were buying something on your credit card. Um, now the Amazon payments idea 
is kind of the uh, new age, like high tech way of doing it. And it's much easier to do. And um, on the post that I mentioned, it does have a video tutorial too. So it, I, I actually show you how to do it. So if anyone is interested in that, you know, make sure you check it out, watch a video tutorial first so you know what you're doing, you know what you're getting into. Okay, and I'll link to that post in the show notes for this episode because sure. I'm sure somebody is going to be interested in that, including me, so at least two people. Yeah, there you go. I Hey, a lot of it's probably my <laughs> most viewed YouTube video, so uh, there are a lot of people out there who are interested in it for sure. Okay, so we have, you know, we have all these secret techniques. We have, I would say, you know, going back to the big spend, if you can find an offer that is available at the time when you need to buy a computer for college, right? that right there is your big spend. Yeah. And for college students, too, you can ask your parents. I mean, uh, you know, they might have to go buy new furniture or get new rugs put in or whatever. I mean, you can say to them, hey, would you do you guys have something big that you want to spend on? Would you mind using this credit card? I have to spend X amount of dollars in X months. And they, you know, they can use your credit card, too, uh, to buy it. You can also may um they could actually just use your credit card if if they wanted and usually if your last names are the same it's okay um or you could go with them to make the purchase just you know for uh fraud sake so they don't you know uh tell them they can't use the card but you can also make them an authorized user and what that means is you have an account it's your account but you can put your parents on your account and they will send them a separate credit card in their name so it still links to your account and you're responsible for paying it but the card then is in their name so they can use it whenever they want. Um, so that's an easy way if you don't live near your parents, if you're a college student or something, and they're going to use your credit card, you could say you can make them an authorized user. They will have their own card. The, count, the spending will count uh, towards your, your account, but they just have their own separate card. Yeah, and obviously do this only if you trust your parents. Yes, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, I think yeah, parents you don't wanna, are probably the best you're people on the hook to go for with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I. Hopefully you can trust your parents. I would definitely not recommend doing this with a friend you made at college or anything because it's like you take your money and your credit score. Yes. And that is the other big concern. Like I'm sure people know at least a little bit about like what affects your credit score. And I mean if they're not familiar, it would be like your credit utilization, you know, how much of your credit limit you use every month, which is the big concern here. So I know when I first got my first credit card, it was a crappy card with a $500 a month limit. Right. And – I've read that if you go over like 40% utilization of that credit, so 200 bucks a month, then you're going to ding your credit score. So, I mean, how do you get past that? You know, when you're young, they only give you a tiny bit of credit. You know, how do you get past that roadblock? Yeah. The first thing I tell everyone is make sure, make sure you're tracking your credit. Um, I I didn't get credit card until I was 28 because I didn't want to deal with it, which in hindsight was a bad decision for the simple fact that the sooner you get a credit card, I'm not telling you to go crazy and, and, and get one and spend on it, but just get one. It's going to help your credit because the longer you have credit cards open, the better it looks on your credit report. So always make sure you're tracking your credit. There's two free programs um, called creditsesame.com and creditkarma.com. You never have to pay anything to use them. They'll give you a uh, kind of an estimation of your credit score. And if it's over 700, that's that means you can usually get approved for the best credit cards. So I would tell young people just to start getting, like find a credit card they think is going to work for them and get one and open it and just use it um, for normal spending and make sure you're paying it off because that is going to help your credit score by opening a credit card when you're younger. Um, as far as your credit score and making sure it's not dinged, yeah, they might give you, if they do give you a small credit limit, you just want to make sure that 
you aren't maxing it out and then going into debt. So even if you spend, if you have $500 limit and you spend 200, as long as you're paying it off each month, your utilization ratio will be at zero. Um, it's, it's if you're carrying that like $200 as a balance, it's not like if you spend it today, all of a sudden your credit score is going to go down, but it's if you don't pay it off at the end of the month. Um, so I think, I think we should, what we should do since I'm, a lot of people are going to get excited about this whole travel hacking thing is like, you know, since college students probably don't know a whole lot about credit cards and are just getting into the game, we should probably like lay down some like fundamentals of like using credit cards so you don't get into trouble while trying to, um, you know, hack them a little bit to make travel cheaper. Yeah. So, I mean, just like blanket rule before you start anything, like scrawl this on a whiteboard or tattoo it on your arm. <laughs> you know, never carry a balance on your credit card, even if you're trying to trying to hit a spend limit or whatever, like pay it off every single month. Right. So, yeah. yeah just rule number. <laughs> yeah. Rule, rule number one, one A and one B. One A would be make sure you're monitoring your credit score so that a lot of people have stuff on their credit score that isn't their fault like credit scores always get messed up i read a thing that said like 60 percent of people's credit scores aren't accurate um and i've had that happen to me where verizon was trying to make me pay a bill i never even had verizon wireless but for some reason it was on my credit report they must have just missed an account number or something like that so always monitor your credit and then yeah never carry a balance don't think that by getting a credit card you can spend whatever you want just use it the same way you would as if you were using cash don't spend any more um, if anything, spend less on it because, you know, you, you can't every day, unless you go every day and check it, you don't know exactly how much you're spending. So just be very cognizant of how much you are spending and don't go crazy with it um, by having a, a credit card and thinking you can do whatever you want and spend whatever you want. Yeah. And what I would recommend is if you're new to credit cards, then use it normally for a while so you can kind of just become a little bit of an adept user before you start trying these tricks, um, definitely like use mint.com for sure. mint.com up to your credit card or just check your credit card thing like, you know, every other day just to make sure you're you're doing well. I think mint is a great option because they have a phone app and I can just check what my balance is every day. I have alarms to pay it off. Yeah. And I mean, what I did is I got a credit card when I was 18 years old and everyone, all the high like guidance counselors and people will be like, don't get a credit card because you're you're going to screw your life up. You know, and I think it's a perfect idea to get a credit card as long as you know you're responsible enough to pay that balance off every single month and to not go over your limit. Yeah. And that will start building your credit. And, you know, luckily, since I did that at 18, now at 22, I can get a pretty, pretty good limit for my age. And now I might have the ability to start going through and doing these tricks and things. Right. So definitely like for the complete beginner, I think that's a that's a good place to start is just learning how to use your credit. Definitely. And I would, a lot of the credit cards that give you the most points are going to be these high level credit cards, like the best credit card offers out there, which for a college student might be hard to get. And uh, we'll link to this. I'll send it to you, Tom and all. Um, I've had a few college students come to me and say like how, well, more than a few, but uh, some we've written up as kind of um, success stories on the site. And they they said, okay, well, I really want that credit card, but I'm a college student and I don't have a lot of income. How am I going to get that? Because usually those are reserved for only the people with the best credit and, and people with a decent amount of spending and stuff like that. And the two biggest tricks that you are not tricks, but two biggest things you can use is when you apply for the credit card, if you are a college student, you probably will get denied if you're, if you're applying for some of the best deals out there, but don't, ever think that just because you get denied right off the bat that it's a denial. I've 
been denied multiple times for different credit cards, and it's simply the automated system shuts it down for whatever reason. So if you put in that you only make 10000 a year or 5000 a year, it's probably automatically going to deny you. But what you can do is you can call in and you can talk to a real person who then has the ability to actually listen to your situation and say, okay, well, we really do think that this person will be a good candidate uh, you know, as a customer for us. So you can always definitely make what we call a reconsideration phone call and then get approved or hopefully get approved for the best cards. And when you do this, if your income is low, the best thing to do is take all this money that you make in terms of like your on-campus job or your off-campus job, as well as any scholarships that you have, because they will actually count that as income for you because you know, you, you technically are making the scholarship and then paying the college, right? So the credit card companies will see as income. So if you have a $15,000 scholarship a year, all of a sudden your five or $10,000 um, income is going to look at look like 25000 So I've had a bunch of college students be able to get approved for the best cards by rolling in the scholarship money and the grant money and stuff like that and having that be considered as their yearly income as opposed to just the money that they're actually making at their job. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point to reiterate, just, just calling in. And I think that's a good point for, for really anything is just, you know, showing that you want it more than just the, the minimum effort take that you right. take to just sign up on the internet. Because I think the act of calling in and, you know, explaining why you want it by itself is probably going to lend you a bit more credibility right for off sure. the bat, regardless yeah. of what you're making. Yeah, and you yeah. want to sell yourself too. Um, I had a friend of mine who was a college student. He was 21, and he, he didn't get approved for these credit cards. And I told him, okay, call in, and let's look at how you can sell yourself to these people because, again, there are people on the other line who are looking at your specific situation, so you have an opportunity to sell yourself to them. And he, he was an art major. He had already had... Um, a book published that he had illustrated that you could buy on Amazon.com. He had, uh, you know, he was like part of the honor roll, you know, all these different little, he did community service. So all these different little things that he did, it's almost like you're giving them a, a resume. Like we kind of said, like you want to sell yourself. So he called in and said, Hey, here are the scholarships and grants I have. So my income is really this. She said, okay. And he said, you know, I'm also an art student and, and, and he sold himself on his merits. And she was like, this sounds great. Like, that's amazing. We're going to approve you for this credit card. And I've had multiple people be able to do that who are college students. So you want to look at why someone would want to approve you. Like, what do you have? And as a college student, one of the big things you can say is, well, I'm, you know, you want to be, they want lifelong customers. American Express wants a lifelong customer. Chase wants a lifelong customer. So if you tell them, I, I'm really interested in your product and I'm going to be getting out of college in a year and I have you know, I'm doing an internship, I'm going to have probably these job offers, they're going to see you as someone, okay, well, if we can get them now, and and they like Chase, then they're going to like Chase for the next 50 years, and we're going to have a customer for life. And we're going to have a good relationship. So, right. That sounds awesome. So anyone listening, definitely do that. You know, just go out there and and tell people what you want, really. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Connecting and telling people what you want, rather than just waiting for it to be automatically given to you. Yeah, and we'll link to we'll link to some of those success stories because I've broken down what each person said and kind of even given you a script that you can follow and fill like a like a Mad Libs type thing like fill in the blank here of what you're good at and stuff like that. So we'll- sure, yeah, definitely. So we've been going for almost an hour now. This has just been like a huge <laughs> info dump I mean, for, definitely for me. For anyone else who didn't talk to you for two hours on Thursday, it's probably even more overwhelming. Um, so it'd probably be a good time to start wrapping up. But you know. I, the frequent flyer miles is definitely your biggest 
um, interest, I'm sure. But do you have any other like quick tips on traveling and you know just making the best of the experience or maybe saving some money that we didn't go over that you'd like to say? Yeah, sure. Um, frequent fly miles are a great way to get your tickets paid for, and that's going to be your biggest expense. But people, uh, accommodations as well is a big expense when you're traveling. And I am a big proponent of, of staying in hostels and local guest houses as opposed to hotels. A, it's going to be a lot cheaper because, you know, a hotel a night's going to cost you 100, 120 bucks where you can usually get a hostel 20 bucks a night um, per person. So, and if you're a solo traveler, it's going to be way cheaper. And they're also great for meeting people when you're traveling. Um, I still, even though, you know, I'm 30, I'm an old man now, I still stay at hostels <laughs> all the time. And, and you always meet some fascinating, fascinating people because it's more, it's a much more social environment. Um, there's usually common rooms, game rooms or lounges. Um, and, and so it's really geared towards young travelers. And there's some really, really great experiences that I've had staying at hostels and local guest houses. You're also usually putting money back into the local economy as opposed to like giving your money to Hilton or something. Mm-hmm. Like that. So kind of a good consideration when you're traveling in poorer countries is, is giving back to the people there. So as far as accommodations, you can do that. You can also do couch surfing. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I've done mm-hmm. some couch surfing. So couchsurfing.org, you can actually go on and, uh, you know, it's like a Facebook for, for travelers more or less. And you can find people in the areas that you're going that are willing to host you. And usually, you, you know, you don't have to pay. You go, you stay in their apartment or their house or whatever. And that's a really cool way, again, to be uh, a travel for, for cheap, but I wouldn't want, I wouldn't tell people to use it just cause they don't spend a lot of money or don't want to spend money, but more yeah, because yeah. you're getting to be with a local. They're going to show you around. You're going to build a friendship. I've had people stay at my house and I've also done it as a traveler and I've always had good experiences. And, um, for people who are a little scared to do it, there, there are verification levels. So you set up a profile and then, you know, people leave reviews of like, yes, this person didn't kill me when I stayed at his apartment, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So yes, this a, person <laughs> killed me when I <laughs> yeah, I'm now writing as a ghost. Don't stay here. Um, but yeah, it's a really cool way to, to see the, the local stuff and stay with people. So I have a lot of friends who do it more than me, but I've done it plenty of times and it's a neat website too. So there are just some, there are some really cool ways out there to get to see the world and you don't have to be rich to do it. You know, if you use frequent fire miles and use some of these other things, you can travel very, very cheap, especially if you do go to places that are cheaper, like South America is way cheaper than Western Europe. Um, Southeast Asia is way cheaper than basically anywhere in the world. So, you know, you get a dinner for a night or a dinner for a dollar or two every night. Um, you can live pretty well, uh, really well for a thousand dollars a month which, you know, is not a lot of money, especially if you're going to Europe, you're going to blow through that in, you know, maybe yep. a week or two. So that's what I love about Iowa, man. Just thousand bucks a month is more than enough here. <laughs> it's pretty great. But yeah, sure. over and over in Southeast Asia, it's just like I'm spending two bucks for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Two bucks for dinner. Three. I spend I spend three to four dollars on an hour long massage. And uh, I mean, <laughs> should mention you're like on the most beautiful beaches in the world. So it's not like you're yeah. you're slumming it. You know, you're just you're living the good life um, in a beautiful, beautiful area. And uh, Eastern Europe's a lot cheaper than Western Europe as well because it's not as developed and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, go where you want to go. But if you are on a budget, there's plenty of places that people don't believe me when I tell them that I've been to Thailand and, you know, I spend a dollar or two dollars on the best dinner I've ever had. And then they go and they're like, yeah, this is this is for real. So, oh, yeah, I would definitely second the hostel recommendation as well. Um, when I went to Japan the last time, we got into Tokyo at midnight. Everywhere was closed except for this capsule hotel. You're like sleeping in little boxes. Yeah. 
But uh, I just I went upstairs to like the little common room just to chill for a little while, and I met this guy named Zach. He was like, "Yo, I'm from Georgia, but I live in Australia now. I work for Boeing." And he's like, "We just had so much in common, and I would never never met him if I would have checked into a hotel and just face palmed onto the bed right right there." So awesome experience. So uh, I guess final wrap up. Like, what are some good online resources people can dive into um, if they want to learn, you know, about a certain destination or just about travel hacking in general. I know there's extra pack of peanuts.com, which is yours. Yep. But then like uh, wiki travel is probably the one that I use the most. Any others that you recommend? Yeah. Um, and, and if you do go to extra pack I do have a start here page, which is probably the best place for someone to go. who doesn't know anything because I break it down. Uh, you know, basically you've never been here. Here's why you should read this and, and here's some good places to start. So that, that's a, a good place. Ob- obviously it's a good place. Um, <laughs> uh, wiki travel. I always use if I'm going to a destination, lonely planet has a forum called the thorn tree. And that is a great place where people just, you know, go on and ask any question. Like I'm going to Australia for the first time. I have five days. Where should I go? Um, stuff like that. So the, you can ask a lot of basic questions. There. There's like sub forums to that for where you want to go. Um, if you go to Southeast Asia, a really, really cool site is called Travel Fish. I, I believe it's travelfish.org, uh, O-R-G. But that has got Southeast Asia uh, covered. And the guy, Stuart, who runs it does an awesome job. He's lived there forever. And he does an amazing job breaking down like even all the tiniest of islands in Thailand of you want to go here if you want peace and quiet. You want to go here if you want to party, blah, blah, blah. Um, so if you're going to Southeast Asia, that's that's a great place. And for frequent fire miles, you can go to my site. There's there's other forum, There's two major forums that are really good called Flyer Talk and Mile Point. But they are, uh, it's going to, like, that's how I learned originally. They're going to take you a while to yeah. kind of decipher. It's like another language, it's more or like less. Info Dump Central. Yeah. It's like, um, what <laughs> yeah it, it's People tough just throwing around acronyms like it's nothing yeah and and it took me a long long time to learn and that is actually why i started my site because i figured well it took me forever to learn this I, you know there has to be an easier way why don't i break it down more simply for people um but they are good forums i mean they have so much information there so if you do start getting uh, more into it and think you're learning a lot, um, you can go there and then even learn even more on Fire Talk and Mile Point. Cool. And I just thought of another one. Um, Reddit's travel subreddit yeah. is really good. And there's a whole host of them like I want out for expats or expat wannabes and uh, the learning languages one if you want to learn a language, the yeah. place you're going to. So definitely like check out the subreddits. Um, cool. So this has been an awesome hour and five minutes of Great information. It was awesome talking to you yet again. So if people want to connect with you and, you know, ask you questions, where should they go other than your website? Yeah. So I love, love, love getting reader questions. I know both me and you have talked about like trying to get our inbox to zero and it's like (laughs) a challenge, but it's a good challenge because it means Mm -hmm. people want to know what you, the information you have. So I love answering uh, reader questions. And so you can always email me. Uh, It's just Trav, T-R-A-V at extrapackofpeanuts.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. It's it's at Pack of Peanuts. So I'm not as into Twitter as uh, kind of, you know, the lower 20, 20 year old people are ever. You guys know how to use Twitter like crazy. I'm <laughs> on it. I, I get how to use it. I don't use it as much. Um, mm-hmm. I do use the Facebook page. So there's a Facebook page for extra pack of peanuts. So you, if you come and like that, then 
you know, every time I put a new post up, you'll automatically get updated. And and probably the best way is I have a newsletter list, much like you do uh, for College Info Geek, where you know you sign up for the newsletter list. I'll send you out um, how to become a frequent fire millionaire. Is the email series you'll get that in the beginning, and then every time I make a post, you'll just get a simple email. Hey, there's a new post here. If you're interested in it, come read it. Click this link. Um, I guarantee I won't be spamming your inbox too much. I probably <laughs> don't send out enough emails as it is. Um, oh, dude, but- me neither. I'm horrible at it because <laughs> I'm like such a perfectionist with emails, yeah. and I'm like, oh, maybe once a month I'll get one out there. So yeah, so that's a, on that. that is a great way, especially for the newbies, because I I do break down the probably my best stuff is in the the first email series is five or six emails come to you and it's very, very straightforward step by step. Okay. Do this step, sign up for this. And it's filled with links so that you can easily do this stuff. So that's a, that's a good way for new people to kind of get their feet wet into the uh, world of frequent fire miles and, and basically cheap travel. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. So uh, once again, thank you for coming on this show, and thanks for all the information. This has like been a huge learning experience for me, and once the travel bug hits me again, which it is worming its way right now, I'm going to be diving into this stuff. Awesome. I at least need to get a new card, because mine doesn't do miles at all. It's just like cash back, and it's <laughs> probably not the best option. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate having me on. Um, if anything, I, I have a big passion for, for helping college students because I didn't travel as much as I should have when I was younger. And I know it's going to open open young people's eyes to a world that, that really is awesome. Um, so the more people I can help that are younger to get out there and travel, the, the happier I am. So yes, please feel free to contact me any way that you want. And I'd be more than happy to give you more information. All right. So yeah, final note, go travel no matter where it is. That's right. Do it. (laughs) That's right. Just do it. Thanks so much for having me on, Thomas. Yeah. All right. Well, if you don't want to travel somewhere after listening to this podcast episode, then I don't know what's wrong with you because I definitely want to travel somewhere now. You know, after I recorded this interview, I just got the travel bug then on kayak looking at flight prices and I want to start doing this stuff myself. Now, again, caveat, make sure you're responsible with credit cards. Don't go crazy with this because your financial security is more important than saving a few bucks on a plane ticket. But that being said, it's some really cool stuff you can start doing. So start thinking about it. Um, once again, if you want to connect with Travis, he is at extra pack of peanuts.com. You can connect with me on Twitter at Tom Frankly, and he's at Twitter uh, pack of peanuts. Um, that's about it for this episode. Again, the show notes are at CIG podcast, sigpodcast.com. Uh, find that episode 13 show link and you'll get everything you need to know. Also, if you haven't written a review in iTunes yet, definitely go into iTunes, write a review, and I will love you forever. All right. Uh, until next time, stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com. Thank you.